Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Back in the early 1900s, there was a guy that was born that um, really most of you would not know for any reason. His name was uh, Orville. And uh, Orville had uh, lots to his story. He went through, uh, his first marriage ended. He struggled with some addictions to smoking and some stuff that was a struggle in his life. He had some anger issues. And then he was remarried. And uh, being remarried was wonderful. Um, He had gone through and served in the war and came back out. And that was a thing that caused him some stress and some struggle for the rest of his life. And like I said, he got remarried. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but marriage doesn't fix everything. Um, if you're married, it didn't fix everything. I would tell people in our marriage class that, um, that getting married doesn't solve your problems. It reveals your, your stuff, right? Um, so his marriage, his second marriage didn't fix everything. But what happened in the course of his life was that he had a group of friends that were um, passionate about getting him to Jesus. Um, and they invited a pastor to come and visit him on the farm that he lived and worked. After that pastor visited, it took some, a little bit of time, but he eventually surrendered his life to Jesus, and he was radically transformed. He was not perfect, but he was different. He invested in the children he had with his new wife and continued to invest in the children from his previous marriage. He served He even made sure that his grandkids knew what a relationship with God looked like. He would often drag those kids to a little country church where they would sing um, or do little skits while he would teach the gospel. Now again, I know most of you guys, like the only Orville you know is Redenbacher. Like I understand that. (laughs) I know this Orville because he was my granddad. His name is Orville Alva. It's a very unfortunate choice of names. Um... So he went by OA his entire life, and he helped shape my life. And I love his story because the reality of his story is the reality of all of our story. There was the life that he was living, and there was a life that God wanted him to live. And there was a gap between the two, and there were people in his life that cared enough to help him close the gap and get to Jesus. And it changed everything. And that's the reality, like I said, for us. There's this war in our worlds. You see it even played out cinematically all the time. The whole crux of Star Wars is that there is a war of worlds. If you watch Harry Potter, there is a war of wizarding worlds. If you watch Lord of the Rings, there is a war of worlds. If you look at U.S. history, it has been constantly a war of worlds. And if we look at our own life, there is a constant war in our life between the life that we live and the life that God wants us to live. It's this gap that we have to cover. And no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, this is true for you. Maybe for you, you're saved, but there is a life that you're living with the influence that you have, but there's a life that God has called you to with the influence that you have. Or maybe there's a life you live with the friendships that you have, but God is calling you to a different life with the friendships that you have. Or there's a life you live in the marriage that you have, but there is a life that God is calling calling you to in the marriage that you have. Or maybe for you, it is simply that you currently live in a life of lostness, And you don't know who Jesus is, you're not buying into all this, but there is still, whether you realize it or not, this calling inside of you to a life that God wants you to have. See, no matter where you are in that, whatever you're struggling with, here's the good news that I want you to hear. We're going to anchor today's message to this reality, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul is writing, he says, you lived in a world without God and without hope. 
Anybody remember that? Like how many of you would love to wake up tomorrow without God and without hope? Right? And yet, uh, here's what, listen, we need to feel the burden of this church. Most of the world will wake up that way. And it needs to bother us. It needs to stir our soul. It needs to send us in to mission. He says, you lived in a world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. It came at a great cost, but Jesus closed the gap. And yet I can read that, and this place doesn't erupt in celebration. And maybe it's because you've grown up in church your whole life, and you're like, I don't, I don't know if we're supposed to yell and scream in church, and I would just tell you it's fine here. Um, but I think the truth is, for many people, they can't comprehend the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the love of God, the truth of God. And if I could be, if I could, if I could be real transparent with you, I think a lot of us have walked in it for so long that we have forgotten how to be awed by it. Like, you know, there's that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Like at one time, the fact that God chose you, pursued you, loved you, saved you, blew your mind, and now it's just a thing you do for an hour on Sunday. And I want to get back to the awe. Like for those of us that have been in church for a long time and it's become too familiar and we're no longer awed, I think the Holy Spirit is crying out in you today, no! Like get back to being blown away by the mercy and the grace of the gospel. That Jesus alone, at great cost to himself, shedding his own blood, is the only thing that connects you from this life to this one. You can't get there on your own. No one else can do it for you. It is through him and him alone. And if you've experienced that, the most natural thing that you could possibly do with your life is to help other people get from here to here. You with me, church? So Luke writes to a person that is trying to figure this out. His name is Theophilus. And he shows him that Jesus is the only one that can close the gap for him. And he's going to give us a great example in the text that we're looking at today. I want you to look with me in chapter 5, starting in verse 27. And the first two words is after this. I'm going to come back to that a few times. Because if it starts with after this, you should probably do what? Read what came before it. So we're going to look at that in just a minute. But he says, after this, after something, after a series of events, after whatever has just occurred, Jesus went and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax office. Now let me explain the Roman taxation culture. There's three tiers to the Roman taxation culture. On the top tier, there's Rome. They're collecting the majority of the taxes. They're setting the rules, setting the standards, and they have the power in the military to enforce it. Under that, you have what's called chief tax collectors. It's like a pyramid scheme. They've got other lower tiers tax collectors that work for them and the money flows to them they siphon off as much of it as they possibly can and then they pass along whatever Rome says to Rome and then you've got the third tier the lower guys they're the ones working for the chief tax collectors who are working for Rome Levi is one of those guys if you're the low tier that means you're placed in a city in all likelihood that you grew up in you are a Jew that is working for a corrupt system that is hurting the very Jewish people you grew up and went to school with, played with, started your jobs with, were in a family with. Now imagine if one of your best friends, one of your family members turned and they did something so horrific to to their own people, how would you feel about them? Well, they don't like him very much. He is hated. He is not welcome 
in their homes. As a matter of fact, tax collectors were not welcome in the synagogue. They were essentially looked at as a lost cause. They couldn't be redeemed. In the rabbinical tradition, they had quotes about tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, I'm not going to say this in the original language because it's long and I will not nail it, but I'll sum it up for you. It goes like this. The rabbis, Jewish rabbis would say, tax collectors and prostitutes are the worst of the sinners, but of the two, tax collectors are even worse than prostitutes because at least with a prostitute, you get something in return. That's Levi. He's working in a little booth in all likelihood in the middle of their town amongst people he knows. So imagine somebody you know who has turned on you and betrayed you, and he's probably ignored, people are rude to him. Have you ever done that thing where you don't say anything directly to somebody, but you let them know by the look that I know what you did, I've not forgot, where you're walking past the little booth and you're going to get whatever your bread or apples or whatever, and you just, you give them the... That's what he's getting all day, every day. Levi knows what it's like to be on a list of people who don't belong anymore, people who are on the outside. So what happens next? Well, it's going to be insane. Because Jesus, and let me tell you, and I'll explain to you why in a minute, he in all likelihood knows exactly who this is when he stops. Jesus is going to stop and look at him dead in the eyes and rock his world. It says, and he, Jesus, said to him, follow me. Now, it's two words for us, but it is so full of grace and mercy and invitation that we, we can almost barely comprehend it. It's an invitation where Jesus is looking at him and go, come follow me, do what I do, walk how I walk. I'm calling you out of the life that you're in into a whole new life. Come and follow me. And there's a reason he was interested in this, but let me just tell you how intensely that he wants him to follow him. Like God doesn't want us to generally follow him. He wants us to specifically in great and radical obedience and total dependency on him, follow him step for step. We're not gonna get it right, but we are not perfect, but we're gonna endeavor to do it perfectly every single day. I mean, it's dangerous when we do not. I'll give you this example. When, several years ago in 2012, I got to go over to, to Africa, to Zambia. Um, and when we were over there, we were doing a lot of missional work. And, and then they said, hey, we're going to take you to go see something beautiful. It's, a, it's, a, it's called Victoria Falls. If you've, if you've been there, you know what I mean. If, if not, let me explain. Victoria Falls is twice the drop of Niagara Falls. It's, it's in the original language of the people that I was with called Mosiotunda, which means the smoke that thunders. That, that this spraying out of here, they, they used to, it was tradition, that they thought that, that smoke was steam. They thought this was a crack in the earth maybe leading to hell. And they thought it was smoke that was rising out of its great cavern. But it's not at all. It's actually water bouncing from all the way at the bottom back into the sky as a vapor and a mist. And, and, and this is what it looks like if you get closer to it. It's this beautiful thing. Now, in America, if we had this, there would be fences all the way around it. In Africa, there's none. One thing's cool there, just a little side thing. Uh, there's monkeys everywhere, and they will ride you like a taxi to get where they want. You can walk around, they jump on your leg, you walk, they are there, and then they will jump off and take off. It's amazing, okay? But we're there. There's no fences. The general safety kind of like methodology of Africa is, hey, it's a giant hole in the ground. If you fall in it, it's not our fault. 
Uh, you can see it, right? It's there. Um, but you can also go do whatever you want. So there were people that came up to our group, and they're like, hey, we have some experts that if you would like to, we'll walk you across the edge of the falls. Everybody in our group said, uh, no, <laughs> except me and a guy named Dan. And Dan and I went, we'll go. And so they brought us to two guys, and they introduced us to two native Zambians named Elvis and Jerry, probably not their given names. Um, and we walked with Elvis and Jerry. I had Elvis, he had Jerry. And we're walking, and Elvis said to me, hey, just walk where I walk. And I thought, okay, I'll take this as a general instruction. And I follow mostly the path that he walked. And as we did, it didn't take very long, because we walked about a quarter of a mile across the edge of these uh, falls. And again, if you go off the edge... Two times the drop of Niagara. I slipped, fell into the water. He grabbed me and pulled me up. And he said, Jason, no. He said, basically told me, when I put my foot, you put your foot, and then I will move my foot. He wanted me to step exactly where he would step because he knew the path that I didn't know. He knew how to avoid everything that was going to be a pitfall for me. He knew with great wisdom and experience how to navigate this in a way that I could not have known. So he said, follow me. And that's what's happening right here. By the way, it was an amazing experience. I won't get into all the details, but my wife told me, stop telling me these stories. Um, just freaked her out. Anyway, God walks up to Levi and he says, I want you to follow me. He gives him this great invitation. And can I tell you, Levi in this moment has not proved anything. He's not proved himself to Jesus. And yet Jesus is, before he proves a thing, extends to him a second chance at hope. And so maybe what's even more surprising than the invitation is the response of Levi. Here's what it says. I want you to write this down in your notes. Jesus invites us to burn the bridge. In verse 28 it says, so leaving everything, so leaving everything, he got up and he began to follow him. Now, we'll say this is not the first time that we, ask, we see Jesus in this chapter saying, I want you to come follow me. He said it, says it to some fishermen at the beginning of the chapter. But what Levi does is much more costly. See, fishermen and, and fishing businesses were usually owned by a family. So when those guys leave, they're probably leaving it to family. And as they leave it to family, they can come back to get into it. But Levi, if he walks away from this, Rome is not giving him grace to come back. He is burning the bridge back to his former life. We've got this illustration I want to show you, if you could put up that screen. See, we have this, this life that we often live in. It's, it's marked by sin and death and guilt and burden. It's this little island that we live on, and we go, man, I want to get off of this island, and there's this bridge that's called the cross, and what we have is this, this grace and mercy of God, and he calls us, he beckons us to a different kind of life, and we walk over here, and there's freedom, and there's hope, and the redemption, and there is life, and it's this wonderful thing that we are called to, but here's the problem with many of us. How many of us us are exhausted okay some of you are so tired you couldn't even raise your hand like you I, some of you tried I watched you and you were like Ugh. Uh, but I don't just mean physically how many of us and don't raise your hands for this are spiritually exhausted can I maybe make a suggestion as to why in my life when I get spiritually exhausted in your life when you get spiritually exhausted is that you started in a life over here and God said I want to call you across the bridge over to this but we came over and we lived over here for a little while, and then we went, oh, oh, but, but that looks really intriguing to me right now. So I'm going to go back across the bridge, 
and I'm going to get to enjoy this thing that I didn't want to really leave behind. But then I feel a sense of, of guilt and shame, and I, I know that I should repent and confess. And so I go back over here, and I go, I want to live the life of freedom and hope, and I want to do this. And that's great until something else happens, and maybe I get upset or stressed or depressed. And I go, yeah, but my sin was much more, was very comforting me in the, in the moment of stress. So in my moment of stress, I'm going to come back over here to my sin, and I'm going to live my life on this island. And I'm going to go, oh, okay, I can get my stress uh, free, but it really doesn't last for me. It doesn't stick. I really need to anchor my life to faith. And so we run back over here, and we go, I'm going to get over here to faith. And we spend our entire life running back and forth from this life to this life and we wonder why we're tired and what Levi does is burn the bridge to stop going back to the life that we've left there's so many of us that are leaving tentacles we're leaving pathways back to a life that is destroying us because it's comfortable for a time Levi burns the bridge and I love that about his story if you go, why? Why in the world would he do that? I would just go, this is what that phrase is helping us with. When it says at the beginning of 27, after this. After what? Well, go back and read chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you read chapter 4 and chapter 5, here's what you find. Jesus comes out of the wilderness being tempted by Satan and standing up for him in his faith. Standing strong as the Son of God, full power of the Son of God. He walks into a temple, we talked about this in week one, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and says, you've been waiting for hundreds of years for the hero to arrive that is the hero of the story. I am he. And he walks out and he begins to wreak havoc on the oppressor and release the oppressed from captivity. And that's not where it stops. If you look at the rest of what happens then, he moves out and he goes and he frees people from demonic spirits. He goes into Capernaum, and into this little area. He moves out to Capernaum. In Capernaum, he, uh, he, he frees people from demons. He heals people that are, uh, that, are, that are sick and ill. He calls his first disciples. There's a man with leprosy that is cleansed. Then there's another guy who gets lowered through the roof of a hut so that his friends can get him to Jesus. He makes that guy be able to walk again, but he doesn't stop there. He actually forgives that guy of his sins, a thing that only Jehovah God can do. He demonstrates his power over and over and over again in a small area of Capernaum that is just a little group of people at that time about a thousand people in population do you think word spread listen word had gone out from that place people are going do you hear about this guy that did this you hear about the guy that healed the guy of leprosy do you hear about the people that wrecked the roof in that in that one meeting when they, they brought the paralytic and they lowered him down to you what about the people who we thought were just crazy and he freed them from demonic spirits what about these other people that were healed what about the guy he said your sins are forgiven see levi had heard he had seen it's a small town. It's a little area. And Levi knows something. He knows that if anybody can close the gap for him, it's got to be this guy who stopped and looked me dead in the face. And it does. It dramatically changes his life. You write this in your notes. Jesus invites us to throw a party. This is the great response of Levi. I love this. Verse 29. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. I, we, sometimes, we, I, sometimes we sanitize the words of Scripture. Grand banquet party. It's a party, okay? Um, he gives a grand banquet, and now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining with him at the table. I mean, think about that response. So often when we get saved, like we're like, all right, I am saved now. I'm so spiritual. People are like, let's talk, and you're like, yes, thou ought to come unto me, for I am filled with thine fullness with the Holy Spirit. And we do crazy things, like we get in our car and we preset all of our radio stations to K-Love. It's the most spiritual response we can have. You got to get a fish sticker for the back of your camel, get that stuck on there. 
You get on Christian Mingle, you make sure you get a Christian tattoo, but it's got to be in your forearm so people can see it. They know you have a past. You read all the books by whoever, Jeannie Allen, Francis Chan. They're all great books, but you go to the conferences, you listen to the podcast, you make sure your entire house is outfitted with Magnolia Farms crap everywhere all over the place. <laughs> My wife's looking at me right now. She's going, don't say crap. I just said it again. Sorry. <laughs> and then we start to have these super spiritual thoughts. When somebody goes, uh, what about your unchurched friends? And you go, ooh, I don't know what my unchurched friends will think about me now. I need to keep this Jesus thing on the DL. As a matter of fact, for now, for now. Not forever, not, I wouldn't, I mean, who would do this for 20, 30 years? For now, I'll let my actions be my witness. Well, that's not what Levi does. He decides to be active in his faith. Puts a party together for his former co-workers, his drinking buddies, the party people, the loud people, the people, watchers. And I don't know if that sounds spiritual to you, but I would just tell you that is the most spiritual thing you can do. To invite those friends that you used to go drinking with, those co-workers you used to gossip with and say inappropriate things, the ex that you broke up with because you were unsaved and you lived in a life of sin and you call and apologize and ask for their forgiveness. And when they say why, you say, well, I, I changed because I met somebody and I'd love to tell you about them. I mean, he knows his friends aren't going to go to the synagogue. He's not even allowed in the synagogue, but he wants to get them to Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Did Levi have all of the answers to spiritual questions? Did he understand all theology? Did he know someone who did? Absolutely. See, this is where, and I just want to deviate from this for a minute just to get into this. I don't know how many of you guys struggle with this. I struggle with this, getting into what I would call, uh, or what our culture calls the doom loop. It's this cycle of negative thoughts that plays through your head. Anybody ever struggle with that? It's this thing, and here's what I want to tell you. I think that maybe the, 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 the way that we need to resolve the doom loop in our life, and I just realized I'm missing some of my notes. All right. uh, the way we resolve the doom loop in our life is to focus on what God is doing right now. To focus on the blessings of what God is doing. To focus on the benefit of getting to see God move and to see the kingdom of God lived out and not around our life all of the time. As a matter of fact, something we shared in our vision meeting, I'm going to try to give you some highlights as best I can from memory because I did not bring my paper in here for some reason. But let me tell you a little bit about what God is doing. Over the, the last eight years, well, this year alone, we've seen more than 80 people baptized, 530 of them uh, overall in an eight-year span. We've not only seen that, we've seen more people in discipleship groups than we have ever had in the history of our church. We've had to add parking with gravel. We're about to add more parking with gravel because on Sunday mornings, honestly, there's chairs in here, but there's no parking spaces out there. And so we're going to have to add parking. On Wednesday nights for discipleship programming, we run out of parking. Our kids' ministries have grown radically in just the last two years. As a matter of fact, in 2023 alone, our family ministries at events like Sunday morning, mostly all Sunday morning, have registered more than 200 new families this year alone. Not, not only that, we see stuff like, our, I mean, our, our, our youth ministry two years ago, about 30 kids, now over 90. Our Awanas, when we launched two years ago, about 13 kids were coming regularly, now 85. When J.D. kicked off, uh, where'd you go? Oh, he, he just walked somewhere. I think he's trying to find my notes. Um, but J, J.D. Uh, uh, launched a young adult ministry in that process. A couple of years ago, he had an interest meeting. Four young adults, college age, showed up to that meeting. Now, about 30 of them are meeting here on Wednesday nights all or Thursday nights all of the time. We have a region ministry. 
And Regen is like a Christian discipling 12-step program. It takes over this campus on Monday nights, reaching people that are going through difficult times and difficult seasons. And not only is that growing, but we've added student Regen to that in the process, and we're seeing unbelievable things. A few months ago, we, didn't do, we did not have Christian education here at our church. In other words, we weren't running a school or Mother's Day out. I thought it might be another year before we launched it. And now, over the last couple of months, both of those things have been happening. We have about 42 kids every single week that are getting education from a biblical worldview in this church every single day of the week. We have seen, yeah, it's good. That's good news. Come on, guys. We've seen our giving go up, which means if you don't know anything about Crossroads, the more we give, the more we give away. It goes to other places. Let me tell you, just in this last year, just in this last year, or not last year, not last year, just in this last week is what I meant to say, we as a church sent about $14,000 out. And let me tell you where. We sent it to two of our missional partners, partly to India for some needs there, but the other part was to Africa. Let me tell you what happened, what's happening in Africa right now. So they, they host an event every year. There's about 5,000 in attendance. Last year, 5,000 in attendance, they had over 1,000 except Christ. Now, let me tell you what the event is. Those 5,000 are all pregnant women, every one of them. They come to that event because they meet practical needs. They get sonograms and medication they cannot otherwise get. But they're also given a birthing kit. If you don't know this, in, that, in lots of parts of Africa, if you do not have a birthing kit, which is basically a package of sterile things that you have to take to the hospital in order to have a child, if you do not have a birthing kit when you show up at the hospital, you are turned away, period. The reason that many of the mothers die, the reason that many of the kids die in childbirth is not because of massive complications. It is stuff that can be avoided by a $5 birthing kit. You as a church just sent over $7,000 to Africa this week to be a huge part. It, it, honestly, it takes about $50,000 to put this on. We contributed 7,000 of it to make sure this year they've already got over, they've got more than 5,000 coming. They got about 5,500 to 6,000 coming this year. They get in there, they meet the needs, they bless, they help them with medical issues. And then every one of them, you know what they do when they're sitting there for two days waiting for a sonogram, waiting for medicine, waiting to see a doctor, waiting to get their birthing kit? You know what they do? Tell them all about Jesus for two straight days. And that's what the whole point of it is. But you contribute to that. That's what's happening in the life of our church. We're seeing, we've got, we've got a group being led by Ed O'Brien that's going through count, uh, training for biblical counseling. Over the last, what, seven, eight, nine months, they've been training together so that they can come out and be a part of what God is doing here. We know there are people with many needs that need counseling from people who are trained to do it. So they committed on their own to go through that process so that they could be equipped to give biblical counseling to people in need. And guys, God is not done, and I'm, no, I'm missing a ton of other stuff, uh, but I'm going to tell you, oh, thank you, what, what, a, what a blessing. All right, so um, let me see what I haven't got, because I don't want you guys to miss this. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, thing. When you look at the attendance of our church, even, from 2021 to now, coming out of COVID, we were running five to 600 people, including kids. Now, depending on, uh, w you know, our, our culture's very scattered. If everybody showed up at one time here, that's what happens at Easter, and 2,500 of you show up in this building at the same time. Um, but on an average Sunday, uh, anywhere from 800 to 1,200 people with kids will show up at this church on a regular basis. Last year, we had an event called Winterfest with 4,000 people that were in attendance. It was absolutely amazing. Um, we have a joy group. Our joy group is our senior uh, group that I'm two years away from as of today. Um, they're 50 plus. 
Um, and let me tell you what's something incredible about these awesome people. Um, they have grown to be one of the most active, faithful, serving, exciting ministries in our church. We are so, so happy for them. We host training sessions for foster and adoptive families. We have a funeral team that started in 2021. They have blessed dozens of of families and thousands of people during a time of loss and a time of grieving. Last summer, we saw more people than ever out on mission. Um, can I just tell you, in 2021, we sent zero people out on mission trips. We've had over 50 go out in 2023 alone. We saw our summer kids program, kids games at the highest attendance ever. Our youth camp was unbelievable at the highest attendance we've seen it. And our church grew during the summer. And we're not done. God is opening the door now for sports ministry, more mission trips. And while we have gotten a chance, like I told you earlier, to help plant two different churches in the last eight years, we are currently looking for more opportunities to do more. Why do I tell you all this? Because when you're in the doom loop of thought, it is good to remind yourself of what God is doing. And when you understand that, you are reminded that God is getting people to himself. We are a part of getting people to Jesus. That's what Levi wants to do in this story, and it should be the norm for every one of us. I can't wait till I get to heaven. There's so many people I want to see. I got questions. But some people I want to run to immediately is the group of friends that refused to give up on my granddad and sent a pastor to his house because it not only changed his life, it changed our family tree. It changed me. And I want to thank them. Now, in the process of all this excitement, will there be people who aren't happy about it? Always. If you continue in the story, it says in verse 30, but the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Literal translation here, why do you eat with scum? Levi knows what it's like to be on that list. The outcast, the scum. It's one of the saddest questions in the Bible, but I love Jesus' response. It is perfect. Jesus says in verse 31, Jesus replied to them, it's not those who are healthy that need a doctor, it's those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. His answer is a perfect balance of grace and truth. Like, he, he didn't leave. Like, he didn't go, oh, they're sinners? Ugh, gross. Get away. Ugh. Because that would have crushed their spirits. And he didn't say, hey, guys, it's no big deal. Do whatever you want to do. He, he doesn't minimize their sin. He acknowledges it and yet stays to love on them. It's powerful. Like, who would you invite to a party? I think sometimes we can get confused where we go, well, if I was going to invite to my party, the party we're talking about is clearly the one I'm having at my house. I would invite certain people. I would not invite others. Fair point. That's not the party we're talking about. This party isn't your party. It's Jesus' party. Who are you willing to invite to his? See, that's the question. This is why churches get in, 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 a, in a problem, and this can happen here. When we are getting more worried about developing holy huddles where Christians feel comfortable than we are interested in reaching people who are far from God. See, out of response to grace, we want to help other people get close to God. And Jesus says, they're sick, but here's good news. I'm a doctor. This is what doctors do. It was very weird. I'm not, I'm not trying to get into COVID politics. You can think of whatever you, you think, but here's what the thing that was crazy for me about COVID is in COVID, you would call the doctor's office and you'd be like, hey, um, I need to come see a doctor. And they go, uh, are you sick? No, no, I was just calling to see if you guys wanted to hang out. Like, like I mean, of course not. Yeah, do you have a fever? Do you have a temperature? Are you throwing up? Is your head hurt? Yeah, 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 all those things. Like, Sorry, I can't see you. And you're like, what? Isn't that the point of the doctor? That when we're sick, we go to them? Jesus says, I'm a doctor. I hang out with sick people. 
Let me tell you what irritates Jesus. You can write this in your, in your notes. What irritates Jesus are self-righteous people who keep sick people from getting to a doctor. He goes after them every single time in Scripture. When Christ followers mess this up, it messes people up. Sometimes for a long time, sometimes for eternity, when we screw up the invite. Levi threw a party. You know what a party's good for? <laughs> a party is a moment where you're like going, something great has happened in my life, and I want other people to experience it with me. It's a place where they can come, and it will let their guard down, where they can feel included and accepted. And Levi didn't take a class. He didn't go to Bible college. He just brought his friends to Jesus. And so I want to encourage us, don't ruin the invite. Don't ruin the invite to Jesus' party. Let me tell you some ways we do this. See, there are people we don't invite because, one, we don't get them. They're just different. Like, they're people who think different than us. They believe different than us. Like, they, they, like it's like, it doesn't make sense. Like, they're confusing to us. And I tell you, the Bible is calling us to invite people with understanding and empathy. Maybe they think and feel what they think and feel because of some things in their past. Maybe they believe what they believe because they were never taught another option. But here's what we do, because empathy and, and understanding are in such short supply, the way we start as believers is we walk up to somebody and they say, I, and we, we say to them, I need you to understand where I'm coming from. Well, you just built a wall and expanded the gap. That's throwing up defenses in the lives of everybody you say it to. But as Christians, what we should have started with, hey, I'd really love to understand where you're coming from. That I open the door for them to share with me what's going on in their life. How did they get to where they are and the beliefs that they believe? It's important. That closes the gap. When people think we don't care, they walk away from us feeling shamed and dismissed. We need to have empathy. And I mean empathy even for people we don't agree with. A second thing that we tend to do, there are people that we don't invite because they offend us. We need to invite by overlooking an offense. If we're honest, we live in a world where, listen, come on, anybody have hurts, struggles, stresses, anybody, okay, uh, anybody in here, like you, you're so stressed out, the things that shouldn't be stressful stress you out, like every time the Rangers bullpen gets involved in a game, you start to get a little bit stressed, it's just one thing that'll stress you after another, and here's what's happened over the last several years, is the shock absorbers to our life are shot. You know how you know that? Because the slightest thing sets you off. And what we jump to is our worst conclusions. Uh, this is very funny, but I, I often use movies and food as illustrations. And a couple of weeks ago, somebody approached me and they said, Jason, every time you use a food illustration, it is, uh, it's a delicious food because we always get inspired to go eat it after the message. But it's always unhealthy food. Could you work a salad into your sermon? Um, <laughs> fair point. Let me tell you my experience with Chipotle salads. Um, so... Uh, <clears throat> I love a chipotle salad, but the best thing about a chipotle salad is the honey vinaigrette salad dressing. It's the only dressing that they have. They don't offer other dressings. It's supposed to come with the salad. It is a key ingredient to the salad. And when I order it online, I go pick it up. I always pick it up and I look in the bag because I'm used to this. No salad dressing. So I go, can I get some salad dressing? Like, yeah, you can. And they give me the salad dressing. And then one time I remember going, I, told, I called my wife out of this. Said, I'm done. I'm done with chipotle because I, I, I went up there. I opened the bag. No salad dressing. I go to the thing and I go, um, hey, I didn't get any salad dressing. And the lady goes, uh, out. 
And I go, yeah. I mean, my response was a little bit sarcastic. And I go, yeah, I understand that. And she goes, wow. I, I get that. But, um, like, what, do you, what happens now? Like, if I ordered a burger from you and there was no meat on it, and I came to you and said there's no meat on this burger, you wouldn't just go, out. You'd give me my money back or something. So I started getting into a conversation, and I didn't want to get too amped up because I was very amped up inside, but I was afraid I was going to wind up on a social media video somewhere. And I was like, you could be a Karen or a Jason. Like, I didn't want, I didn't want that to be me. So I, I was worried about it. So I kind of calmed down and I was like, well, I'll be the bigger one. I'm going to walk away from this conversation that is idiotic. Uh, and I, want, I got in my car and I was, I was like, God, you see what I did there? Whew, I, I didn't get after her. I could have said this, but I didn't. And God goes, oh, Jason, you didn't say something mean to her? Way to go, buddy. Not all heroes wear capes, Jason. Good job. Now, what God convicted me of in that car was you have an opportunity to blow her mind with grace and love in a place that she probably never gets to experience it. And you chose to make you feel better simply because you didn't say something mean. It was an offense. And instead of seeing an opportunity, I could only see the offense because I wanted her to know I was right you should have salad dressing I don't mean I don't mean right I don't mean right according to the scripture the scripture is always right but let's be honest most of the stuff we fight about is opinion it is circumstance and I I was right but here's the problem or here's the thought what if I wanted to connect her to Jesus more than I wanted her to acknowledge I was right. Proverbs 19, 11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger and is to his glory to overlook an offense. Some of us need to do this, maybe take that scripture and tape it to your phone. Because when you get on social media, you're like, oh, I got this comment, I got to send to this. How stupid was this? I better tell them what I think about this. And you're, you're commenting and you're commenting and commenting. Let me ask you a question. Are you convincing anyone? Uh, no. But you are ruining the invitation. The last one I want you to write down, there are people that we don't invite because, and I wrote this very specifically, we can be poopy heads. I want you to look at this cartoon real quick. You were a believer. You go up to heaven. Can you imagine being greeted like this? You were a believer, yes, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. If I can be honest with you, it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of convicting. Where's the kindness? Being saved by grace should make us gracious. If it does not, my question would be, then what did you experience? Because if it's grace, grace should be the response. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for who? Everyone. See, there's power in the invitation. Because lives get changed, they get close to Jesus. I want to wrap up by telling you this. He, 
See, the, the guy we've been talking about in this whole section, his name is Levi. That is the Jewish translation of his name. The Aramaic translation of his name is Matthew. He's famous for a book you might be familiar with called Matthew. And if you read the book from the very beginning, he is obsessed with who all God will invite into the party. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David. And he proceeds to show the family tree of Jesus. Now, if you were to look at your own family tree, and I don't know if you've ever done Ancestry.com, you might find some stuff that you were like, ooh, that's cool. That's really interesting. And then you find stuff where you were like, ooh, there's some knot holes in my tree. There's some stuff I wish didn't exist. How many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you would go like, I know there's some knot holes in my family tree. There's some branches that we, you know, tried to prune. Like there was some issues in the growth there. Um, and if you're going, I don't know of any, well, it's probably you. Uh, so... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you can find some cool things. If you go on Ancestry.com, you can find out that Al Roker and Lenny Kravitz are cousins. It's pretty cool. Uh, Ryan Goslin and Justin Bieber, cousins. Crazy, right? You can also find some interesting knotholes. Robert Pattinson, who, you know, now he's Batman, but for a long time we knew him from the Twilight series. He's actually a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, the guy originally considered to be Dracula. Jackie Chan's mom was a drug dealer who wound up marrying the very cop who arrested her. <laughs> and here's some other stuff. We've got weird stuff. How many of you have ever been in a full-on family fight over, you know, who gets to operate the turkey fryer at Thanksgiving? I know that's a very specific example. You think of yours. Or the uncle that shows up drunk to the Christmas party. Like those things. We have those people in our life. Here's what I want you to know. The genealogy of Jesus looks just like your family tree. And that's what's amazing about it. See, I want to tell you some of the names real quick that Matthew covers. He covers Abraham, who we know is Father Abraham, the father of a nation. But he's also a guy who was unfaithful to his barren wife. And had sex with and a child with another woman. And yet God showed up in his life. There's a guy named Judah. He's one of the 11 brothers of Joseph. We always talk about Joseph's story. It takes up a huge section of the book of Genesis, and yet Jesus is not considered the lion of Joseph. He's the lion of Judah. Well, who's Judah? Well, Judah was the guy who was money hungry, sells his brother into slavery, tells his dad a lie. And if you think that's bad enough, later when he's older, he sleeps with his stepdaughter because he thinks she's a prostitute, and when she reveals that she's pregnant, not knowing who he slept with. He said, well, she must have prostituted herself. Let's kill her. And she said, I did prostitute myself. I did have somebody sleep with, and it's you, stepdad. And she gives birth to Pez, uh, uh, Perez and Sarah, Zara. That's Judah. But it gets worse. He has kids, Er, Onan, and Shelah. The first two, God strikes dead because they were pure evil. Manasseh is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. He throws his firstborn child into a fire. Rahab is a prostitute. Bathsheba is the woman that David went and had an affair with. And yet, the Holy Spirit wants us to know who the great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus Christ are. Now, you can write this in your notes, but here's the thought. Matthew, you, you could have glossed over all this. Unless somehow it brings hope to the story of Jesus. And it does. You see, if God can save and use them, then surely 
he can save and use me. You see the hope? Levi understood this. Very often in that culture, they would name their children kind of according to the profession they hoped they would grow up into. Levites were priests, pastors. As a matter of fact, his name in the original language means gift of Jehovah. That's what his parents wanted. He wound up a tax collector that was hated and ignored. Probably a disappointment. He's rejected. He's the enemy. And he had probably given up on the idea that God could use him at all. Maybe you experienced that where a parent wrote you off or your spouse stopped believing there was anything you could do to change. Or you were sober for two years, but you took a drink a couple of weeks ago and you can't kick it. You feel like a failure and a disappointment. Surely you would never be on any list filled with hope. Matthew knows what it's like to feel like you didn't make the list until Jesus showed up in his life. And he lets him know, man, you may be really good at sinning, but I'm way better at saving than you are at sinning. Your past, your failure, your divorce, the abortion, the bankruptcy, the DUI, the arrest, the internet search history, the addiction, whatever it is you've got that's pulling you down, you are not. Your sin is not stronger than the grace of God. But the invitation to follow him starts with repentance. This is the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. It's why they can't enjoy the party. Because they're unwilling to acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior they need. They're unwilling to acknowledge that they are sinners in need of salvation. And when you acknowledge that you're a sinner, when you acknowledge that he's the only hope, that is the beginning of repentance. Maybe even this week you've drifted in your life, you've drifted in this week into anger or apathy or despair, and you wonder if you would ever be a person that would be invited into the party with Jesus. You are. He will. Your life can be changed. It starts with repentance, but many of us look at repentance wrongly. Write this in your notes, please. Repentance isn't mourning forever over the sins of your past. It is celebrating that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. So, if you got that, don't you want to get it to other people? Don't you want them to experience this transition? Don't you want to close the gap for somebody else? Who are you inviting? I know sometimes we'll say questions in church, and I'm guilty of this too, but we hear a question in church and we go, well, that's a fascinating question, Jason. Um, I'll ponder that for the next three to 12 seconds and try not to think about it for the rest of the day. But can I, can I tell you, please don't do that. Can, can I give you some information that I think is really important? The, the Barna Research Group did this study. Thousands of people that were surveyed. I, want, I don't want you to miss this. They exclusively surveyed for this non-believers. Thousands of non-believers. And here's what they got. 77% of those non-believers said that they would be willing to listen to a conversation about Jesus. 77%. of them also said that they had multiple Christian friends and none of them had ever talked to them about it. As a matter of fact, Barna said that in the last six months, it is likely that 10% or less of church-going, Bible-believing Christians, most that only 10% have shared their faith at all. Now, on one hand, I'm impressed 
that we've seen the move of God all over this world and all over this country. We baptize as many people as we baptize. And if we're doing that with only 10% kicked in, then praise God for that. Can you imagine what would happen if the other 90% stepped into the game? We want to see a world change, don't we? We want to see a transformation of everything that we look at around us. And it's not going to come through politics or social justice. Those things can be good. They can bring some benefits. But the, 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 the hope of the world was never supposed to be a political party. It is a person whose name is Jesus Christ. That's the truth. 85% of people who come to know Jesus do not do it at an event. Let me define event. A church service, a conference, a concert. Only 15% of people who come to know Christ say that those moments are the moments that did it. The rest of them got saved in, in, across, across coffee tables, sitting on couches, talking to somebody one-on-one. And yet, here's the staggering part of all this. I know sometimes you get stats, you can get lost, but here's the thing. What we're seeing is there is evidence that the unbelieving world wants to hear. They are willing to see transformation. When shared with them, there is a powerful transformation that happens. We know that the gospel can change lives. But we have a Christian world that now every year is increasingly believing a lie. And here's the lie they believe. More Christians now than any other time in history believe that evangelism and sharing the faith is supposed to be done from stages, not houses. That they think lost people get saved because you come up here and you have somebody who's a quote-unquote professional pastor, speaker, teacher, and they're going to be the ones that do it. But I would tell you, all evidence points to the contrary. We are here so that we can build you up, equip you, and then send you out because that is the spiritual warfare. That is the battle. That is the place where lives are being transformed and it's because the people of God start to behave like the people of God, get excited about the transformation of God and want it for somebody else. And so I just want to encourage you, church, who are the people that you could think of in your life that are the most difficult ones to invite? Maybe God's calling you to them. And maybe that's a group of people Maybe they think something different than you, believe something different than you, vote different than you, see issues different than you. What if God's calling you to them? Getting them to Jesus is the priority. That's where transformation happens. For others, and if I'm being honest, I would just tell you this, I believe for many of us, the answer is not a group or anything like that. It's a person that you already know right now. There is a name on your heart. There is a face in your mind. And God is calling you to tell them what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your word. And God, I pray that we would be a church, we would be a group of people that wouldn't, wouldn't just hear your word and go, oh, we're going to be great hearers of the word. That's a great start. But it is not the calling of scripture. We don't simply want to be great hearers of the word. God, you have called us to be doers of the word. You've called us, God, to to set a fire in our soul, to ignite a spark, a flame within our spirit, to walk us out into a world and to desperately want to share with everybody else what it means to be close to Jesus, to walk from death to life, from hopelessness to hope, from failure to forgiveness and find the truth and the love and the embrace of a God who so, so passionately loves us and has entrusted that mission to us. So God, I pray that you would make us excited about that. I don't, God, I don't want us to feel like a burden. 
I want us to feel it like a calling, like an excitement. The way that an athlete can't wait to take the field. The way that a fighter can't wait to take the ring. God, I pray that that would be your people who can't wait to walk into the world and bring your gospel to the lives of people who need it. God, we love you. We praise you. We trust you. In Jesus' name.